Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Ji Zhang, a culture writer and critic. This week we are discussing Minari, finally, with a very special guest, the Hollywood Reporter's TV critic Ingu Kang. We're so excited to be talking with her about this. It's been a long time coming, obviously, because we watched it a while ago. But it's finally out uh, for pretty much anyone to see. So that will be our solo dolo focus. How exciting for you guys. Anyway, before we get into that, though, how have you been, Jenny? I've been okay. Recently running into some troubles with double masking because my ears are not strong enough to take everything on top of my glasses. So it's not good. It's what's gonna uh, happen? You're gonna start bench pressing with your ears. I guess I have to, yeah. or maybe get some, like, do one of those scarf thingies with a mask, yeah, um, tied around, or I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen there, but all for the sake of public health. Yes, you'll figure it out. I think the tie situation is smart. I've heard some people are getting contacts, which is <laughs> quite drastic. Oh hell no! I'm I'm not going back to that. Yeah, to never that never again. No, never again. <laughs> not since college. I've actually yeah, I've never known you without your glasses. So that it's would a, be it's weird. A totally for me. different part of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, how how are you, Pellen? Oh, I'm all right. You know, carrying on my hunter hunter journey. I think it's the only thing that's saving my mental health right now. Which is sad, it's a little bit. but also I'm glad it's I very have it. This connection. Yeah, um, I'm also the the thing. It's funny because it's counteracting. I'm watching Lost. Like the first time I saw Lost uh, was back in '08, and I only watched season one. So I'm like continuing on the seasons, and I think that's actually making my mental health worse. So oh, I'm at this okay. nice neutral stage of just normal mental health. I think so. Bounces um, out. But yeah, do not I'm, recommend that do, everyone watch Lost. Lost is, I mean, Lost is great. However, you know, watching a whole bunch of people being stuck on an island and only having flashbacks of the past, it's a little bit triggering <laughs> for right too, now. Too on the nose. Yeah. I mean, if I'm bringing it up in therapy, you know it's a problem. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, but, I'm yeah. glad slash not glad to hear that, but that's what anyway. it is. <laughs> <laughs> so now we've made our special guest wait and like watch us record <laughs> this opening banter for the last few minutes. So we're just going to go right into it. Welcome, Ingo. So Ingo is, as Pellin said, she's a TV critic for The Hollywood Reporter, all around fantastic writer on film, so TV, good. culture, so uh, good. great tweeter too. Yeah. Um, and she also, she recently hosted her own. Uh, limited podcast, at least as far as we know for the moment, all about Amodavar, about the filmmaker Pedro Amodavar, with actually someone else we know, Daniel Schroeder, who's a producer and, and podcast person. Yes. Um, and Ingu also recently published an interview with Lee Isaac Chung. Yeah. It just um, came out on Friday. Yeah, at The Hollywood Reporter. We'll link it in everything. Um, so we'll definitely reference that during our conversation about Minari, and I'm really excited to to get into it. So, Ingo, how are you? Why did you stop talking? You made me sound so good, and now it's over. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to be over. We're going to be we're gonna be raining, raining yeah, compliments. We'll, we'll keep for, hyping for, you yeah, up. Yeah, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm good. Um, I rewatched this very recently, uh, close to recording, and now I'm a stumbling wreck. But other than that, <laughs> I'm pretty good. Braver than the uh, troops bring- for rewatching <laughs> it right before recording, honestly. <laughs> 
Yeah. That was very dumb on my part, but what are you going to do? I'm you're fully bitch. in it, though. You're, you're going to feel the every single nuance and emotion running through us. Um, exactly. And actually, you're probably going to have to pull us down to your level because mm-hmm. Pellin and I need a little bit of a refresh. Yes. Uh, we have not watched a film since December, so... Uh, hopefully we still remember everything, but it was a very memorable film, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just make us fucking cry, man. That's basically... I made <laughs> Lee Isaac Chung cry during our interview, which <laughs> I have to say I've never done that during an interview. So that Put it on your resume! Thing. Put it on the resume! <laughs> That's bragging rights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so I guess before we get too ahead of ourselves, I'll go ahead and just introduce the film a little bit. So, Minari is a film written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung, as who we've been referencing these past few minutes. It is finally out now. It's It's been a while, but it finally has limited theatrical release, and it's available on some virtual screenings from A24. And basically, the, the movie is kind of a semi-autobiographical story about a Korean-American family who moved to rural Arkansas in the 1980s. You know, the father, Jacob, played by Stephen Young, our fave. Uh, what a babe. Um, fave babe. Yes. Of course. Yep. Um, he has a dream of starting his own farm and growing Korean produce to sell to other Koreans in the country. His wife, Monica, played by Yeri Han, she... There, there's kind of some tension between them. She wants to do what's best for their family. She feels a little bit betrayed, or at least like this is not sort of what they had on the cards for the future. And then they have two young children, David, played by the fantastic newcomer, Alan Kim, and Anne, played by Noel K. Cho. And then there's the grandmother, uh, Soonja, played by Yunya Jung, who just came from Korea to help watch the kids. Yeah. So that is sort of nutshell. She's a Korean Korean acting legend as well. I think she's been in. I think this is her first American film. Yeah, and I think she's like the the breakout sort of um, mm. in terms of acting and like critical reception and things like that. As like Ingo, you talked about this a little bit in your interview with Yasek Chung. Yeah, how did you find her performance and I guess the performances of the entire cast? You know, I feel like there was so much buzz for Stephen Yun when. Like, the movie initially was publicized, like, the trailer was released last fall. And he has such an understated performance. It's it's exactly Mm -hmm. the type of thing that, like, the Oscars do not have any respect for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I also really liked Yeri Han's performance. I thought she did, Mm, like, a lot of, like, really subtle work. But I... I feel like uh Jung's performance is like both really comic and also really tragic. And mm-hmm, she yeah. is sort of able to pull on like both emotional spectrums while having like this magical chemistry with like pretty mm-hmm. much everyone else in the cast. So it's yeah. pretty unsurprising to me that I mean, no. I, I don't know like where surprise factors in here, but it's a very pleasant surprise that people are going to recognize this, especially because we get these like movies. And you have these foreign actresses a lot of the time guest star in or play supporting roles in, I think, like Asian American movies. I think like, I can't remember her name, but I'm thinking of like the grandmother in The Farewell. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I thought she was so good. She like Mm -hmm. knocked everyone else like around, like demolished everyone (laughs) like around her in The Farewell. And she got like nothing. And it really made me sad. And so this is a really nice surprise that she is actually getting recognition. Yeah. um, When I think it's so much harder for 
like unfamiliar actresses to have this this level of recognition, I guess. Yeah, for and sure. No, and not just that, but like in an ensemble cast, which I think yeah. is like what award shows kind of don't know what to do with them. Yeah, uh, for the most part. Even yeah. even with like top tier A list famous American actors, if it's an ensemble cast, it's kind of like they don't know who to really highlight or pick apart. Um, yeah. Which is, you I don't think, have like a showy monologue or anything. Yeah, like if you're yeah. doing sort of like your Oscar clip like montage, there isn't like some moment where she's like telling everyone off in some Sorkin esque like rant or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. She's just like really fantastic, and I think. Has like I don't know brings in this like real core of like earthiness to everything, despite everything taking place on a farm. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know. She's amazing. She's great. Yeah, what you were saying about like ensemble cast, Melon. I think it it is very much true. Like they work because of how they work together. Like it's their chemistry playing off of each other. It kind of relies on there not being this one um, standout in terms of like, like Ingu, like you said, having a showy monologue, um, you know, kind of hogging the spotlight. And it relies more on like the collective, which is something that award shows and like American cinema, I feel like doesn't really award that often. Um, The some some awards do have best ensemble cast as a category, but they're not like. They're not like the the A list categories. No, it, it's it's hard to ha- have like star making performances out of them, which is which is I think an issue for you know that was the issue with Parasite. But yeah. um, what did you, Ingo? What did you think of the film in general? Like, what, how what were your thoughts about it? Because you mentioned to us before you didn't really love the ending of on your first watch. And we'll try to avoid spoiling the the climax, I suppose, but. There is, like, a big climax, so we'll dance around it a little bit. Yeah. So I think I first saw the movie in December, and by the time I got to see it, I think it was, like, so completely overhyped for me that Mm -hmm. I saw it, and I was like, this is fine. I don't know, like... And then I rewatched it, I think, like, a week ago for to prepare for my interview, and I was so much more blown away, I think, just because I was able to focus on what elements really interested me and yeah i think i just had like a much greater appreciation for a lot of the writing um i knew already that like i really like the performances but when you sort of rewatch a movie it's easier to see like how it's pieced together Mm, and i really appreciated the structure of it and i think what's really great about the movie and what I really appreciate about the movie is that you sort of have this like very unusual Asian American setting of like a guy in the eighties deciding that he's basically going to become like a homesteader away Mm -hmm. from like every other Asian American. Right. And so you have that like really novel premise. And then on top of all of that, you get these like extremely primordial immigrant questions of like was it the right thing to immigrate like what is it doing to our family what is it Mm -hmm. doing to our family's happiness but like it like does all of those things like really lightly but I think that the other thing that I really appreciated a lot more the second time around is that even though it has these really archetypal characters they have really particular family dynamics Mm-hmm. Like one thing I ended up noticing a lot more is that basically you have Monica who is 
a person who feels very, like, culturally isolated because she's a Christian. And so she's already complaining all the time about, like, how she wants to be around other Koreans. But then on top of that, there are people in her life, in her family, who sort of, like, make fun of her for her faith. Like, her husband is constantly sort of, like, digging at her a little bit. And when she wants to be more overtly religious with her children, then, like, her mom starts making fun of her. Mm -hmm. And so... Like, part of that felt very familial, and then part of it felt extremely Korean to me, because there's so much of, I think, sort of Korean interpersonal culture, where, like, the way that you show you love somebody is by, like, making fun of them, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. ask my husband. And so, (laughs) yeah, there were just, like, so many little details about like how people relate to one another that i really appreciated the fuck out of this movie yeah and i think it definitely helps like you can see very clearly like the link between you know this personal story which again this is kind of inspired by liazik chung's own upbringing and just like how that actual like personal significance how that like informs how he tells his story and yeah, it's a quiet film in a lot of ways, but it works together really seamlessly if you examine each of the parts that make it the whole. I completely agree with you. The thing that really stuck out to me a lot was, I mean, I, I'm obviously, I'm not Korean, but there is something that I picked up on in terms of farm work and like land work. And the fact that Stephen Yeun's character like knew about it, he knew how to farm and he knew And he understood, like, he's trying to be an entrepreneur. He's trying to... So that, to me, was an indicator of class, like, within his family. Just because, to me, it not only was he an immigrant, but he was of... I I wouldn't say the poor end of the spectrum. We don't know what his family life was back in Korea. But if he knows how to tend the land, you've got to deduce that he didn't grow up in the sea. He didn't grow up, you know, in in a rich or middle, upper-class family he knows how to tend the land and it's not beneath him. So to me, that was like an, indi- an indicator of class, which then obviously informs what they were expecting of the American dream when they arrived. And then it also informs them of their disappointments. Cause I think like one of the, one of the interesting parts was that they were already there for 10 years. They were, they would they'd already been in America for 10 years. They weren't fresh immigrants but they still hadn't gotten to where they wanted to be as a married couple as a family and that was the thing that was really stuck out to me a lot it wasn't one or two years into it it was a good decade into it and they were still struggling which kind of says all says a lot and if you are or if you come from a family of immigrants you pick up on that signal yeah Yeah. the really interesting thing is sort of that you have this, like, sense, like, nobody ever really talks about this, but you sort of have, like, this sense of what the immigrant blueprint is, yeah. which is basically moving from Korea to California, be around a bunch of other Korean, Korean Christians, and sort of, like, live your life in that model. That's, like, literally my family's uh, entire existence. <laughs> And I think there's something really sort of romantic about this idea of saying, like, not only am I going to take this, like, huge risk of going from Korea to the U.S., but then, like, from California, which we usually think of as sort of, like, the new America or sort of, like, the American dream, and go to fucking Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I th- yeah. and, and I think, like, this is, like, a thing that, like, people 
I, like, I don't really know how much this plays into it, but Korea is a really, like, small mountainous country. And so, like, the idea that you would have just these, like, rolling expanses of land that, like, nobody even can claim. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. there's sort of, like, an inherent dreaminess about sort of, like, that idea. I, I really, like, love the way that this, like, movie connected to, like, this idea of nature and, like, what human beings, like, role in nature should be. Um, There's this, like, running gag about, like, Mountain Dew and how, like, <laughs> the adults in the family think that, like, Mountain Dew is something, like, really pure and wholesome because of the name. Yeah. Which I have to say, like, I've really never thought about. Neither. Um, it's a great name. <laughs> and it's so, great like, because it's so true. It's so true. Like, the things that your parents or like immigrant people will just kind of take out of because no one's explained it to them and then they just kind of run with it and then that's like and then you grow up 20 years later and you're like i thought that was that and then like your american friend or like your british friend or whoever is like no and you're like fuck Oh, it's actually yeah. the worst <laughs> so that, that could so possibly <laughs> exist. <laughs> very antithesis of whatever idea of Mountain Dew. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I like the contrast. And I think the, the sort of like environmental aspect is one that has not been commented on a whole lot. Besides, I think like your interview, Ingu, it's like that contrast between Jacob's character, his like approach to the land, which is trying to conquer it. Mm-hmm. above all and then like versus the grandmother who's just kind of like i'll plant this thing here and it'll grow really well um just this sort of more gentle at one with nature approach mm-hmm. which is a really interesting contrast and could you explain to us what minari means and the role that it plays in this film I mean, it's just a plant. It's like an edible plant that, like, the grandmother brings over to basically Arkansas. I mean, they're essentially like invasive species, yes. right? Like, and so <laughs> that's not the metaphor that he's going for. Obviously, like, obviously, like the metaphor he's going for is that you can sort of like take something that's like rooted in one place, and it can be rooted right. just as well in like another place if it sort of has like the circumstances that it needs right the right conditions but i did sort of like that jacob is like both taking himself away from the other koreans and then also simultaneously hoping to like benefit from them and it's Mm. sort of like this like idea that like you can sort of like try to run away but also you're going to need the people that you're going yeah you're dependent on rely on yeah you need to strengthen it within your niche and and what we're referring to is obviously uh, Jacob, the father figure. The reason why he's farming is to provide Korean vegetables because there's he understands that there's a growing number of Korean immigrants that are coming into America, and he knows that they are seeking vegetables that they won't be able to get. Um, they they can only import from Korea, so he wants to grow on American soil so then he can sell to grocery stores and then make a profit, which is smart. Like it's a smart idea. But yeah, the it's the, a lot harder than than he thinks. Well, farming is fucking terrible. farming is fucking brutal. Yeah, yeah. not um, that I would know, but I listen, from what I can tell. I is- don't. I I've seen enough. Like you, you meet enough farmers, which I I have just because of work, and you just realize how hard they have it. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's hard. I think it follows the same format. Like the the thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Jacob as a character interested me so much, like him and his marriage interested me so much. And it is because it is about immigration, but it's, it is about being an immigrant, but it's also about being a man. Mm-hmm. 
uh, both as a Korean man and, and just as a man in general and what masculinity means. What were your thoughts on that? Because I'd love to chat to you about it. Oh, there's like this like a really early scene where he's where Jacob is talking to his son and they're sort of outside this like chicken factory. And the whole point of the chicken factory is they have these like tiny chicks and they have to divide the boy chicks from the girl chicks. And basically all of the boy chicks are being separated from the girl chicks in order to be incinerated. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is their, that's like their job technically. That's, yeah. that's where they get yeah. money from aside from the farming that's happening also. Right. Yeah. I mean, like talk about sort of like a, complete exploitation of nature right like that was Mm -hmm. and so he's telling his son like boys need to be or men need to be useful because otherwise they're quite disposable and i think like somewhere in my brain i was sort of like this is like the most like un-Asian thing I've heard in some respects, just because I feel like I very much grew up in an environment to where the primacy and like the importance of men and boys were, was so like constantly in your face all the time. But on the other hand, it was sort of really refreshing to have this like other perspective of feeling really disposable. Mm-hmm. And I think like a big crux of the storyline between Jacob and Monica ends up being the fact that like she is threatening divorce and he's sort of like well like if we happen to divorce obviously like I'm not of use to the family and so like his entire sense of self-worth is caught up in his ability to provide or not and that obviously raises the stakes of his agricultural venture Um, but yeah, the other thing that I really liked about the movie is that there's like a later scene where Monica is like, why won't you think of your children and get like a real Mm -hmm. job and like give up the stupid dream? And he's like, well, like, do the children need to have their needs met only? Or do the children also need to see their father thrive in some way? Mm -hmm. And that was very like, oh, my heart. Yeah. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It it was very personal to me because I grew up in a family like that, where my mum was always the one from a very young age, ever since we were kids, was badgering my dad to be better, to earn more money. And I and I could see that in my dad, how he combated whatever it is that she was saying with his masculinity and his pride. I think pride is, you know, something that I think Korean men <laughs> have oodles and oodles of, just the same as <laughs> Turkish men. But he, you know, that pride also at war with just really wanting the people around them, really wanting someone to believe in him, which I saw in Jacob as well, like where he just needed to be the hero, which I think is mm-hmm. the the common thing that comes up with immigrant fathers. It's like they need to be the hero for their wives, for their families back home, for their kids in the country that they're in right now. And how do you become a hero in a in a foreign land? You know, like what do you what do you have to do to be that person? And it's it's hard. It's really hard because everything is working against you, and mm. you are too proud or maybe too humiliated even to accept defeat and move on, which is what we see in Jacob. And that's kind of what really like. There's there's this one scene. I think there's a uh, the hose of water. There's no water coming out. 
and then his son comes out and he's just trying to tell him that everything's going to be okay. Maybe I'm imagining this and this is just the no, spirit like of it. No, there's like an early scene where they bring in like, I think a water diviner. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he gets quoted something he thinks is like a ridiculous amount of money. And so he's yeah. like, well, I don't need water. I'm just going to like dig my own well. And then of right. course it ends up backfiring on him. And then the family yeah. has like no water at some point. Yes, mm-hmm. and that that is exactly it, there's just, that is something that I can totally see my dad doing, you know, and that just really really affected me quite a bit because it was just this is a man that's just trying to do something in a way that he doesn't feel cheated, which I think is like the common immigrant experience as well. Is like you're constantly terrified of being cheated by everyone around you, and it's because it's so so common. It's heartbreaking, and at the same time, like you totally understand where his wife is coming from. It's been 10 years of this. Yeah, not only that, but like the boy has like a heart murmur. And so the further they get away from the city and from other people, like the, and the hospital the health risk. Yeah. I, I also want to talk about the, I guess, the idea of the American dream or quote unquote American dream. And obviously it's something that is very apparent in the film. This idea of Americanness, quote unquote Americanness, is something that people are referencing a lot, especially right now. You know, a lot of the, the raves about this film are like how it shows like this family is like as American as everyone else or, you know, whatever, that kind of sentiment, <laughs> yeah. um, which I don't know, like whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm that into that sentiment, but um, yeah, I, I guess like I, I'm interested in hearing like both of your thoughts on like, as much as ever, like, how big is this idea of American dream or Americanist still, like, in the forefront of, like, diaspora or, like, immigrant or minority minds right now when we think about our culture and what we consume? Like, can can we make a film as immigrants or kids of immigrants without having to aspire for the American dream? Maybe. I, I don't know. I Like, if that is what you would like to see, that I guess that is kind of what I would like to see, but... The American dream has always been fake. Um, but I guess I mean, I'll just say outright, like, like... the American dream even mean? Like, right. I feel like within, like, an Asian American or, like, an immigrant context, it basically means, like, economic ascension, right? Like... Yeah. <laughs> and sort of assimilation in a way. Right. And so, like, is that sort of, like, what we're talking about? Or... I, I don't know. Like, I wrote about, like, the film's relationship to like the American dream but I also sort of just like don't care about it because (laughs) I think that like this film is like not really related to that like it's Mm -hmm. sort of like interesting because I think it harkens back almost to this like 19th century idea that like if you go quote unquote if you go west although in this case yeah it's like manifest destiny yeah like you can sort of like go carve out like a piece of land for yourself and sort of like build something for your family out of nothing and literally lay claim to the land and so like i think in that sense there's a sort of like romance about it but i don't know there's like all of these like other like complicating factors like the fact that like like his own particular idea of like the American dream is like so very much like that one character's own version of the dream because it's not like the other farmers around him are thinking of selling things to like an emerging immigrant group and it's not like the other Koreans are thinking of farming. And so 
he's completely isolated in his dream, even within his family. And yet, that's like the only thing that he really cares about. And so again, I think there's sort of this like individualistic romance to it, which I think like really works for the film, and also sort of makes it easy to sympathize with everyone around him who's sort of like, what are you doing? Right. Like we don't have running water. Like it, our, we're far away from medical facilities. Like how are we going to survive essentially Yeah, at the expense of one man's dream, which maybe is what the American dream has always been about. Well, um, the American dream has always been a personal problem yeah. for, ev- for anyone that right. brings it on or for, for anyone that like invests in it. What they're actually investing in is giving, I wouldn't say giving power to their insecurities, but certainly trying to fight against them. Um, it's, it, you know, for, for a lot of immigrants, it's because these things are tangibly like underserved from whatever country they're at. And that's why they go seeking it elsewhere. But what ends up happening along the way, which is why I think Minari is so important, is like you said, like it isn't really that pursuit of the American dream. It's what interests us about the film. The reason why we like the film is because we're seeing the, I wouldn't say psychological, but the emotional journey of these people as they try and self-actualize. I think that the other thing that like um, the American dream is sort of like a code for is basically did it justify all of the suffering of immigration? And I like the fact that like it was the dad who was being the risk taker. It, it was just like another thing where it took something that was like fairly familiar within Asian American narratives and sort of just like tweaked it enough to make it feel fresh, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is actually like a lot of this movie. Yeah. It like definitely stands out among a lot of this this larger trend of like Asian quote unquote Asian American like movies and film and culture. Um, like Ingo, you wrote recently about the reality shows that we're seeing now, which like stuff like The Empire, House of Ho, um, stuff that kind of, kind of is like directly of the same lineage of like Crazy Rich Asians. But this is like a, a whole different facet of a different kind of experience. Yeah, like where where does this sit within the larger, I guess, like growing canon now of a quote unquote Asian American film or TV? I think it's a really great addition. I remember watching The Farewell, which is so much about sort of like the melancholy of being disconnected or just like far apart from your other family members. Yeah, identified with that a lot. Yeah, and just like the idea that like you have to really make peace or at least like acknowledge like everything that you lost. Um, Not like in like the first stage of immigration, but like even if you grew up here, just like this idea that like Immigration means a loss, and sometimes that loss is going to, like, last for the rest of your life. And I thought it was just, like, such a nice little asterisk on the American Dream TM. And I feel like this (laughs) went even further in exploring that idea. And I'm just always so amazed when American pop culture is able to acknowledge that, like, America isn't the best country in, like, every iteration, like, for everyone in America. Um, yeah. And so... <laughs> Calling into question the the idea of, like, the, the supremacy of, like, 
like why is like American is so aspirational? Yeah, and and I think that was really nice. Uh, obviously, there are so many little details, both like in the script and in the production, that seem very much like pulled from real life. Like I think the thing that like really stuck out to me the most was sort of that whole Korean Christian element. Mm-hmm. And just sort of like the <laughs> weird little like communities and the tensions that like the Korean church can provide like for individual immigrants. There's just like 20 million little details like that, that I was just like, oh my God, this is like from my life also, even though I've never been to Arkansas. Yeah. And so I think <laughs> like that level of craft uh, really mm-hmm. speaks to what an important contribution this is to the canon. One thing that like a lot of Asian American film scholars talk about is that there is no like Asian American canon in the way that like you might find more of one with say like African American film. Um, and I think part of that is because Asian American filmmaking, even on like the extreme indie side, is like relatively recent. And then I think mm-hmm. part of it is just sort of there's so much disagreement about like what matters and therefore what should go into that canon. And I don't know. I think like based on like the level of craft here and also the ways that like it really speaks to a lot of like really common immigrant concerns and also goes against a lot of like Asian American dominance narratives. I would say like put it in the canon. Take Bling Empire out. <laughs> Bling Empire should not be in the same room at all. Um, at all. No. Give it like, a nice twenty <laughs> foot radius. Yes. It is weird that they're like approximately coming out like in the same two month uh yeah. period. How do you all think that Minari's gonna do in like the awards circuit? Not that we should place all like importance on these kind of antiquated institutions that are so flawed in many ways. But still, let's let's talk awards. Yeah. Um and of course Minari is it, there, there's like a controversy with Minari because it only qualifies for like the Golden Globe, you know, nominations, like the the category of foreign language film, because most or more than fifty percent of the film is in Korean, which is sort of like the the qualification for that category. So there's already been a little bit of chatter, and you know, some people are not happy that it, you know, film that essentially is is quite American and in its scope and its setting is not qualified for these sort of other categories so yeah like what are what are your thoughts on this film and an award season um i feel like i have to say as someone who works in one of the entertainment trades that i really have no fucking idea what is going to happen i think partly because award season this year is just crazy um because of the pandemic like none of the things that are usually happening is happening there's no like 2,000 million screenings for Academy members. No one is glad-handing. I think that there are some people who are doing, like, online versions of, like, meet and greets. But on the whole, it's a very weird field right now just because I think, like, all of the things that, like, usually go into the making of frontrunners, like, none of that is really happening. And so the field 
looks very chaotic and like disorganized. And so it's like very hard to get a sense of like whatever is happening. I'm really mostly talking about the Oscars because fuck the Golden Globes, they truly mean nothing. <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't know. I think they're there's so many like good things here. I hope it gets some sort of award recognition if only because it can sort of be fodder for more movies like this. Mm-hmm. But if it ends up getting very minimal or even like no recognition, I would not be surprised. But also given the state of like the awards race this year or award season, like I don't really fucking know. Yeah, it might. I think it's going to. It's going to get the Asian American boost, which might do, you know, a similar thing for it that it did for the farewell. So that could mean something, especially now that, uh, for better or for worse, like Asian American stuff is back in the news and this sort of cultural moment. The thing that I wanted to ask you about, Ingu, was there anything that either you, Ingu, and you, Jenny, did not like about the film? I think you already kind of pinpointed the one small thing, which was like, oh, I wish the daughter had gotten a little bit of shine as well. But yeah, that's it for me. What about you, Ingo? I think there's just like tight, like it's like a nitpick of a nitpick where I have two of those. One is that like, I think like the ending feels like a just a little bit too pat. Uh, um, yeah. Like, I cried, but I was also like, mm, like, of course, like, it would be framed this way. And then I think, like, the other thing, and of course, like, this doesn't really matter, like, in the overall scheme of things. Steven Yeun is not a <laughs> Korean man. And so, like, the fact that, like, his Korean sounded very Korean-American to me, like, mm-hmm, that kept mm-hmm. bothering me. Oh. Um, when, like, the, especially when, like, the Korean actress would talk, and then he would respond, yeah. and I was like, mm. I understand why he was cast uh, in that role, and I think he's very good at it. And it's one of those things that, like, maybe, like, again, 100 people care tops. But, yeah. For, like, a movie that got, like, literally every other cultural element right, I was like, "Mm." But does it really matter? No. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, Jenny, I don't know about you, but my husband got really pissed off at Aquafina in The Farewell. Because he was like, oh, her Chinese, her Chinese was, was bad, yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, and bad for even you know, even if she was to grow up in America, yeah, even for like yeah. an American-born Chinese, it was like pretty. Her pronunciation was just like pretty terrible. Yeah, it's like there's little, um, it's the little things though, and it's because it's like you said, I think it's because everything else is so exact that the one thing that isn't really sticks out. Yeah, yeah, I I understand why he was cast. Um, obviously great eye candy but I, I, I truly can't believe I'm saying this but I think he was too handsome for this role that was my critique was just I can just see that. a bit too hot to be honest I think I would have preferred someone that looked a little bit more rugged looked like he had been on a farm before yeah yeah hey I'm I'm happy for him to be in this film yeah like, like no complaints here give me a hot man in a white you- tank any day <laughs> Yeah, this there guy, let's objectify where, him all we want. Yeah, yeah. There was, like, a scene in the bathtub where, like, in one of, like, the... Because, like, Jacob and Monica have this, like, very fluctuating relationship. Mm-hmm. But they were, like, sort of on an upswing, and he takes a bath, and she, like, washes his hair or something. Yeah, because and he's, like, hurt from, you know, like, working labor. Working so hard, um, yeah. Yes. He can't raise yeah. his arms. And he very much does not have a farmer tan, and I was like... Mm. <laughs> 
You it's might, those details. Yeah. It only stands out because everything else is so good. Yeah. Yeah. It, what was so. his strength in burning became his weakness, I guess, in Minari. Because I think he was cast in burning because he had American affectations, right? With his Korean. Yes. So it's interesting. Where, what is Steven Yeun going to do next? That's what I'm curious about. He's become like a leading man uh, in his own right. So I'm interested to see what he loves to kind of like work with Korean filmmakers. And I think he knew Lee Isaac Chung, right? On a personal level. They're like cousins by marriage. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like there's this like very overarching narrative for most Asian American actors careers where basically they're sort of like typecast or pigeonholed or what have you, or like overlooked, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think like your race as an Asian American actor is always this hindrance and something that's like really magical about Stephen Yen's career is that he was able to take what has traditionally been an impediment uh, and turn that into an advantage. Mm-hmm. Like, he's worked with Bong Joon-ho in Okja, and he worked with Lee Chang-dong in uh, Burning, and both of those roles are... And like and now with Lee Isaac Chung, like, all of these roles are bilingual roles. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is, like, an example where, like, a white actor could not come in and, like, do these roles. Right. And so I find him, like, a really canny, really amazing actor and i find the fact that he was able to sort of like do a reverse and turn that disadvantage into an advantage like mm-hmm. i find that so astounding yeah he's very mm-hmm. and like i don't think that people talk about that yeah. enough great so yeah any uh lingering thoughts that we haven't gone to yet before we let you go ingo since we have kept you uh as our honored guest for a while i feel like we have covered all of the ground (laughs) (laughs) everything minari get it in this this podcast and ingu's interview thank you so much for chatting with us ingu is there anything that you'd like to plug we're obviously going to link uh to your podcast and and the and your articles related to minari but is there anything else that you'd like to plug while you're here I guess we sort of touched on it, but I guess I will plug my piece on Asian American reality TV. I think the question of representation on reality TV is something that I have thought a lot about. Um, (laughs) Probably since I saw like K-Town like 10 years ago. Yeah, I talk a lot about sort of like the outsized importance for Asian American representation that reality TV just has had to take on because so much of scripted mainstream media um, just refuse to acknowledge that Asian Americans existed for such a long time. Um, I also went hard on Bling Empire, which was very fun, but I think also very deserved. For sure. We definitely recommend everyone read that article as well as the interview, all of Ingu's work. Follow her on Twitter at Ingu King. We'll link all these things in everywhere. But yeah, I guess thank you so much again, Ingu. Really, really appreciate your time. And it was wonderful talking thank to you Thank you, Ingu. Here. Thanks for giving me a spot to talk about this really great movie. And that was Minari. Please forgive us for not doing two things. We figured that because we have a wonderful critic, Ingu, on that we would just do the one 
iconic film. So this is what we've been watching lately. You should check out Minari if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep an eye out for it on like A24's new screening, virtual screening room, or wait for it to, to get released on demand. Uh, and if you are watching anything that you think we should check out, always feel free to email us, criticismisdead at gmail.com. Yes, yes, yes. Find us on Twitter or Instagram, criticismisdead. Subscribe to our Substack. Check out, like, the links that we post um, and, like, plug for Ingu, especially in our show notes, mm-hmm. um, which we'll do. And, yeah, I guess that is it. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. See you next week. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Zhang with help from Dan Janine. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu. 